0: My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have a degree in international affairs and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine as well as an IR consultant. And together we're bursting the Western bubble. If If you would like to know more about how this podcast started, what the Western bubble is or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. This being said, let's get to it. Because every fifth episode of this podcast, and this being episode number 10, we will go through the news of the past month and relate to our analysis of our past recordings. If you, as our listeners, encounter any articles relevant to our content, we would be grateful for you to share them with us. This week's episode will specifically talk about how domestic issues in the United States relate to larger Western problems, the continued problem the West has in properly analyzing the Russia-Ukraine war, And finally, Chinese geopolitical plays. And the first episode uh, from our our past recordings uh, we want to discuss uh, today is uh, episode three, the hollowing out of institutions, um, where in the episode we analyzed how the hollowing out of institutions and how this basically influences uh, external Western actions where societies, especially Western societies, have become so tribal that it is no longer about strengthening the Western system, but rather focused on your own tribe winning the fight against the other side. Uh, We looked at the US Supreme Court decision on Roe uh, against Wade and Boris Johnson clinging onto power as UK Prime Minister. And the way that we started talking about this episode, or how both of us were reminded of this, is when just prior to, to recording, basically 10 minutes ago, uh, both of us had a we we had a discussion about uh, U.S. President Joe Biden forgiving uh, student debt in the United States. Um, yeah, uh, how does this relate to the hollowing out of institutions episode?
1: Well, the, um, there are a lot of interesting conversations to be had about uh, the whole situation in the United States when it comes to debt relief. And um, you mentioned Dario before recording. Uh, fairness principles and the, the problems with the way this is, this is being implemented, the people who are being targeted, the political side of it. And all of those are very fair points. However, if you take a step back, the bigger question is, how is it possible that a country that has had such a successful past 100 years, and we talked about this in the other episodes, on uh, episode 6 and 7, if I, or if I recall correctly, on the United States, has been so successful in developing its economy developing its intellectual base that we're now in a situation that in order for you to get some proper education you actually get indebted right Uh, so beyond the question of whether biden's plan is actually the right plan or not and um, you argue that there are lots of problems with it and i would wholeheartedly agree from an ir perspective the very observation that we look at the United States, the richest country in the world, and we see a whole generation being burdened by crippling that, something went horribly wrong in that society, right? And we've discussed the importance of if the West wants to be a model for the rest of the world to follow, they have to start at home first. And no country looks at the United States and says that is a method... That we want to copy where we have to uh, make people borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to get some proper education. That is something going horribly wrong and not just in one specific policy area, but slowly over time, step by step from an evolutionary perspective, sliding down a hill.
0: Exactly. So it it relates back to the theme that we mentioned, uh, as you you just pointed to in episode six and seven, the rise and fall of U.S. foreign policy, where uh, when it came to the rise of U.S. foreign policy, the United States became this beacon of development and this example for everyone else in the world. And then during the fall, we're now looking at the United States as a country that no longer seems to serve as an example. And I think that apart from the... (laughs) From the discussion, whether we agree with uh, with the relief of this debt or not, it's it's right. I mean, I never had the feeling. Oh, I would like to study in the United States. Um, I mean, firstly because way too expensive. I mean, yes, maybe you would receive the top education in the world, but at a price that I'm not sure in what. I mean, in what time period I would be able to to repay.
1: It's, and that's a huge, huge difference simply from a intuitive sense uh, from perspective, just from a, a emotional emotional connection perspective, a huge difference with respect to a generation ago, right? And I, we mentioned this in the, that podcast uh, episode as well on the United States, that when I was a student, everyone wanted to go to the United States. So that has switched around very quickly. And that is not one or two policy initiatives that have gone wrong. It's not George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump doing one or two things, making all of a sudden the United States becoming less attractive. It is a path of many decades that 25 years ago maybe wasn't as visible yet, but very much was there, and now has become completely visible of a society that is no longer able to manage its own internal affairs properly. And if that is the case, how can you ever pretend to be an example for the rest of the world?
0: And this example of uh, of student debt, I mean, it's just a symptom of what we have discussed, is one of the main, main problems uh, with the hollowing out of institutions, is the struggling middle class in general, is that foundation for a strong prosperous uh, Western society is a strong middle class and that the current middle class is further eroding by having to indebt itself in order to just I would say or I would even, even argue just to maintain its current economic status. You have to indebt yourself to go to university to find a proper job to be to continue to be part of the middle class.
1: Exactly and it is a matter of not realizing how society is decaying, right? It is not being able to look in the mirror as the United States. And by the way, when we say the United States, in many ways, we're also talking about Europe. The United States is more an extreme example, but Europe tends to follow the US in these kinds of historical patterns quite a bit, with a bit of a delay. Uh, It it is, for example, in the case of the United States, saying a hundred years ago, our success is based on not oppressing people through government. We're going to celebrate the individual and we have this elegant capitalist market system to make that happen. And then confusing that idea over time with just pure market adoration, pure worshipping of the market and no longer even recognizing the need to have some kind of basic government structure in place to protect that middle class, right? That is something that over time then it's it's... Accelerated in the nineteen eighties under Reagan, but over time the United States has forgotten that yes, it is a country that has rejected European government oppression because of its past history, because of um, its experiences of religious oppression in in Europe and 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 um, the the ever continuing class system in Europe and the United States saying we want to do things differently. That's why it was in many ways created, confusing that principle with an extreme version of it. And that extreme version has meant that over time the United States has completely given up on taking the government seriously, taking the very core principles, the very core institutions that are at the heart of any society seriously, not investing in those and now you see a political pro- political environment that is crumbling and you see a middle class that no longer has the support mechanism necessary. The only ones that are benefiting in the short term from this are those with the economic power to actually protect themselves, right? the top
0: 10%. See, and one of my main concerns and arguments uh, against uh, that the policy proposal by Biden was more or less, this just that I I count the middle class uh, basically to the already prosperous part in society, and that this money would be spent better on uh, the half of half of society or half of the country that is that has not gone to university and has not gone to college, and with this I want to transition into another problem, domestic problem. The United States is failing into maybe the thousands and thousands of people who are homeless in the United States. And here, because both of us like to compare our YouTube algorithms, uh, because it's almost a representation of who we are, given that machines may, maybe at some point uh, uh, know us better than we, we know ourselves. And something that has come up quite a lot in my personal uh, YouTube algorithm lately is uh, our videos about homeless uh, people in San Francisco. And I don't know whether it's just a very extreme and one-sided way of reporting uh, about this and I mean I've only clicked on one or two of these videos but it seems like homelessness is becoming an increasing issue in the United States and one that's maybe not being taken care of as well as it should be
1: and this is this is statistically completely evident it's also anecdotally completely obvious for anyone who travels to the United States in San Francisco by the way is a very clear example uh, of that. When you walk through San Francisco now, there are way more visible homeless people than 20 years ago. But, but it's, it's, it's a broader thing. And, and this is statistically clear. There is a poor class in the United States, but there also is an extremely poor class in the United States. And that, that both of those groups are growing. Um, and the top rich, the, the top 10% is now becoming the top 15%, so that's growing, and that means that percentage-wise, the people in the middle, the, the backbone of society, are disappearing, right? And that's why uh, the United States has much bigger problems than simply dealing with a specific uh poverty challenge or anything like that. It is it is it goes to the very heart of what the United States wants to be. If it wants to be this thriving, prosperous nation, then it's not just about helping poor people, it is about having the backbone, the middle class strong again, right? Going going, going back to the poverty issue, uh, it is directly the result of a government that is not functioning anymore in the United States. There is no government mechanism that helps poor people in any way that can be compared to European countries anymore. Or that could be compared to the United States 40, 50, 60 years ago. The, the, the government is failing at that level in the United States because of these patterns that we have discussed. Without a properly functioning government apparatus, and you don't have to be a, a raving communist, you know to to argue this, uh, you cannot, actually fulfill the basic moral duties that you as a society have and surely avoiding homelessness is one of the core core principles of any reasonable society right you you, nobody can look around and say homelessness is 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 everywhere but we are a moral righteous society and 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 without some kind of government apparatus it's just not going to happen you're not going to be able to deal with the homelessness issues why why is there no government apparatus because of the lack of confidence in the government because of a middle class that is no longer able to defend its interests through the government and is squeezing out of of society
0: see and not only do we observe um, a failing uh, part of the government but also an active a process of undermining uh, the U.S. government, and here, obviously, transitioning to to the next domestic issue we want to discuss, and something that was very big in the news uh, about two weeks ago, it was when the FBI uh, raided uh, former president uh, U.S. president uh, Donald Trump's uh, residency in Florida. Uh, I mean, for I, I don't think we should we should get into the specifics of why this happened. Um, I mean, we're not a podcast about U.S. Uh, domestic form uh, about U.S. domestic issues, um, but it is another example of how how institutions are undermined, of how there's a politicized process in an area of the government that shouldn't be politicized.
1: Yeah, so this goes both ways. In many ways, Democrats and those critical of Trump have focused too much on the individual of Donald Trump, and, and the result of that is that Donald Trump has become the symbol for a large group of Americans to who stand, who stands up against sort of the liberal establishment, and I think it's been a mistake to continuously go on and on about Donald Trump and how crazy he is and how um how how horrible he is. TV shows. I mean, I, I used to love The Daily Show. I used to love all those uh, Stephen Colbert and people like that. you know I I loved watching them. But they became completely obsessed with Donald Trump. And the result of that is that Donald Trump is becoming much bigger than he should be. In a well-functioning society, what happened here, what, what should have happened, was this. Donald Trump, a not very good president, did something probably quite dodgy, something he shouldn't have done. He took secret documents home with him for whatever reasons. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. The FBI investigates that. FBI takes some 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 of those documents back with them th- there will be a process maybe there will be a court case case closed and and if Donald Trump is found guilty then he will face some punishment if he's not found guilty not... that is the simple process that you want instead the moment that the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago you straight away get this political fight about whether the FBI is somehow biased and Uh, on the side of the Democrats, anti-Trump. And that is terrible, terrible news for a well-functioning democracy. Because a well-functioning democracy needs to understand that its institutions are neutral. That the FBI, the police, legal institutions are not on the side of any political party. And yet everything has become politicized. So rather than letting the FBI do its thing it has now become a fight between Republicans and Democrats. And, and that's once again a sign of how poorly Western societies are doing at the moment.
0: And this is exactly what I read out earlier uh, when I uh, summarized the, the the episode on hollowing out of institutions, that it's no longer about strengthening the system, but rather on, y- on focusing on, on your tribe winning the fight.
1: But that is not just uh, on behalf of the Republican Party that we should be critical here. Uh, It's the Democrats as well who make these kinds of mistakes and who who politicize all kinds of things that they shouldn't be politicizing. There should be some red lines that you don't cross and yet they're being crossed.
0: And moving on to another red line, um, is that, uh, and, and this one flew past me in the news, uh, but you mentioned it uh, in, in our discussion before this episode, is that now the Supreme Court uh, is basically being questioned where people are raising the thought that there should be term limits uh, introduced to the judges, right?
1: And that's exactly the same pattern once again. And, and, and it's good now that after being critical of sort of the right side of American society, we can also be critical of the left side of um, American society. So we discussed Roe v. Wade in our podcast before and the, the, the overturning and how bad that was as a step of the Supreme Court to not understand that beyond any specific choices it makes, it also needs to understand its own position and that its own position should be beyond a reproach right its own position is one of wise seat of judicial power that is neutral in every aspect and is there to protect american society and americans should be able to look at it like that the fact that they made the choice to overturn overturn roe v wade even if there might have been proper legal arguments in favor of it was something that completely undermined the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in the eyes of 60% of the population, or something like that. Because it's such a hot, controversial topic, and the Supreme Court should not have touched it. Okay, now, a few weeks later, we see exactly the problem with what happened. Because now, the left side of American society, the liberals, are incredibly angry and bitter about this choice, and they want to get rid of the people who made this choice. And as a result, there is a serious attempt to introduce, it's not going to make it, I suspect, but a serious attempt to introduce term limits to Supreme Court justices. Now, the the result of that, of course, would be a further politicization of the Supreme Court. The moment you know that a um, a justice is no longer going to be there for the rest of their lives, that means that there, there is this continuous political process around the, the successor, around the next person who needs to uh, take that seat. And it's no longer about someone who should be there on the merits of their legal expertise and their, their internal wisdom, but it is all about which party at which time is the biggest so that they can appoint their own justices. It completely undermines this whole fundamental principle of um institutional neutrality and you can see this kind of thing in other institutions well right one of the things that's very frustrating for outsiders who don't understand academia very well to see about universities is tenure right tenured professors uh, by the way i'm not tenured i'm an associate at our university, so it's, it's not because i've got a day job i've got some real work to do uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but 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 tenured professors can be very frustrating for the for society to watch because that means that a professor well you have to take it very very far for the university to even be able to consider firing you all right Uh, you you would have to murder three students in broad daylight before the university has a talk with you like oh we don't know if we should continue at our at our great institution The reason for tenure, though, is to keep that independence of the professor to make sure that the professor can freely and openly analyze and research the things they want to analyze. And that's exactly what you should have with Supreme Court justices as well. Keep in mind that if a Supreme Court justice is 50 years old and um, he knows that 10 years from now, his term limit is up then he will start thinking okay what do i do next what do i do for the next 10 years of my career before i retire and then they will start talking to the political parties that might support them and they start um, engaging in this whole back and forth that they shouldn't be engaging in they should be above society instead we're dragging them into the political fight
0: and this is relevant for us because of the position the west has globally Exactly, the West has to
1: be this example towards the rest of the world uh, if it if it believes in its own role in destiny, right? If it believes in the end of history still somehow that the democratic liberal model is the way to go. Unfortunately, um, they seem to forget about their internal weaknesses and very much focus on the foreign policy global game where they are no longer really concerned about who they are um, domestically, but they are basically pushing an agenda, a self-serving agenda elsewhere. And and a very clear example of that, of course, is Ukraine, which was going to be the next topic of our conversation, where uh, you can see the trouble it has in actually looking at the conflict of Ukraine and Russia in a... um, in an in a analytical neutral productive way and rather cho- it chooses to take sides and, 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 and f- focuses on its tribal sphere.
0: Exactly. Um, what a nice transition uh, yeah towards towards the next episode we want to discuss. Uh, this is the very well the very first I mean it's the, it's the first episode, uh, but it's not the very first episode we recorded. that was the introduction episode. And here we spoke about so in episode one we spoke about Russia and Ukraine um, where we basically discussed Ukraine and analyzed the West's attitudes and involvement regarding the war in Ukraine. We discussed specifically the differences uh, the, of in Western perception of Putin versus Zelensky, and most importantly the damage that embracing one and demonizing the other can cause. Uh, the reason why, I mean, at least the, the, the article that uh, kind of sparked my interest um, on, on, this, on this very topic uh, last week, uh, I think it was published on Euronews, um, but the title just said, did we grow tired of Ukraine, uh, of the Ukraine war on TV and in newspapers? I mean, to me, the Ukraine war became very repetitive after three weeks uh, when it was really just about looking, oh, here, there, they took a town, they retook a town and so on. Yeah, analytic analytically there wasn't much
1: interesting to observe anymore right from and from an analysis perspective not from a moral perspective because every day people are dying homes are being destroyed human suffering takes place but that is not particularly challenging from an intellectual perspective what in what what should be our interest at this stage of the war is how do we bring it to an end right and that kind of analysis is completely lacking no one is writing about what kind of success or at least mitigated failure limited failure are we looking at in order to bring the violence to a close Uh, and the reason for that is that that would involve us stepping out of our little bubble western bubble and saying, okay, the, the 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 conflict in Ukraine will finish in a way that is not satisfactory to either party.
0: And and how much of this bubble is us constantly reading about this in the media? Um, because I mean, again, it's all day long. You read oh, the evil Russia bombed a school there, a hospital there. Um, this and this many people died here. Uh, I mean, I it just. I mean, the media has already made up its mind of who's the bad guy here. So is this influencing our thinking in how can we bring this to an end?
1: Yeah, because if you have created this picture in your mind of good versus evil, which we clearly did, and we did that straight away, we did that already before the war started, by the way, with the help of people like Biden as well, who, who already pushed for this image, like we are going to stand together, united against an evil Putin. Um, then then the analysis kind of stops and it just becomes a matter of defeating the enemy, defeating the bad guys. And the media is clearly in this tunnel still very much so, but they will, they're will they noticing that people are switching off. Now, you mentioned this before. Uh, part of it is that intellectually there is not much interesting going on. It's a military exercise right now. It's about who's winning. And in the end... You know, you know spoiler alert no one is going to win this war completely there's no gun there's not going to be a brilliant Ukrainian victory and there's not going to be any brilliant Russian victory either in the end it's going to have to stop with both parties compromising in a certain way um but the fact that our generation um our media is not capable of Analyzing it properly and just playing this 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 simplistic bubble game is an indication of our times. Um, you're also the generation before me, and um, you've got a bit of a, you know, your generation, not you specifically, uh, Dario. I would never say that about you, but uh, uh, your generation has a bit of an attention deficit disorder, right? It's it's your 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 generation finds it very difficult to. Simply take a book and sit under a tree and read for a few hours without looking at uh, at their phones, and and the result of that is that the media, uh, in order to keep this war alive, is uh, needs to sort of talk about human interest stories about victims, but they cannot actually do the proper in depth thinking that is required because consumers of media are just not interested in that anymore. They need to, they're moving on. They, they After a few weeks, after a few months, they, they're looking for the next big story. And this is a very common pattern in general with respect to foreign policy, but it's getting worse and worse, right? So foreign policy is typically one of those things that people are very excited about for a short period of time. Any war, any kind of economic um, struggle that's, that happens globally is interesting for a short period of time. But after a while, when the people don't see the direct consequences in their daily lives, they move on from there.
0: I mean, example of this uh, are well, I mean, the the first that comes to my mind is the war in Syria. Um, it's I and and here you would think that attention attention would be on there a little bit longer because people felt the effect through the the refugee movements afterwards, but very quickly became about the refugees here and no longer about the, the problem in Syria. Then the war in Afghanistan is, is an example. Uh, you said that now we focus more and more on individual uh, well, stories that, that happened within the Ukraine war. And one, an example of one of these individual stories uh, was the murder of um, Daria Dugina, um, the daughter of a Russian nationalist uh, who died in a car explosion. Um, and, I mean, so how is this an example of individual stories being put on the cover and this distracting from a conversation from a bigger picture conversation how could this be solved
1: well as in general with these kinds of uh, topics is that you want people to be able to relate to emotionally relate to the news and how do you relate to the news emotionally by humanizing it right by giving it a human face this specific example though is very interesting for different reasons because this was the murder, the attempted murder of Alexander Dukin, uh, who is a ultra nationalist, as she said, in the end, at least as far as we think, we think what happened is that he was the target, and he, and she got in his car and she got murdered instead, um, but she wasn't the actual target. And what you notice here in the media. Uh, Western media bubble is that they didn't know how to actually cover it. Because it's a really interesting story for them to cover in itself. But it is one in which possibly Ukrainian intelligence agencies are involved. That's at least what Russia claims. Russian uh, officials have, have claimed that. We don't know if that's the case. But it is clear that this is about a Russian person being the victim of violence very likely related to Ukraine. And that is something that Western media finds very difficult to cover because do you make them into this human victim, which they should, because she, regardless of what kind of person she was and regardless of the personality of her father, she is the victim of a brutal assassination, brutal murder. Do you cover it as such or do you cover it more from a perspective of oh, who did it, um, who is behind it? is uh, what is the what is the political philosophy of her father? What is her political philosophy? And that is what uh, the Western media tried to do, right? Rather than giving it the personal attention that it would usually give it. For example, if the daughter of a Ukrainian politician had been killed in a car explosion, then it would have been a completely different story. Straight away, the narrative would have been a young woman died in her prime uh, as a result of Russian aggression. But now the Western media can't do that because it doesn't fit into their narrative. So they have to find a different angle and they really struggled with it. And you had this real debate. Some articles argued that her father, Alexander Dugin, Dukin was actually uh, very critical of Putin. And so thereby, through implication, suggesting that it was the Russian government that actually assassinated her um, and wanted to kill him. Uh, others were saying, well, no, it's obvious that she... Um, uh, she's she, she's part of Putin's inner circle and he's part of uh, Putin's inner circle uh, but we don't really know if this is a political politically motivated act internally within Moscow or whether it actually is done by outsiders .ie ukrainians that so they were very very confused about how to on how to report this and that is once again a really good example of how we in the West, Believe we're all rational, but in fact we're completely biased in our own little world, in which we can only see things through a very Western lens.
0: Because the the opposite example of this uh, happened happened a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, so in uh, in, in Salisbury, um, when the uh, Sergey and Julia Skripal, um, two two Russian nationals, were were murdered on on uh, on British grounds uh through through the through the uh, poison of of novichok i remember the huge huge reaction and immediate evil portrayal i mean of course in itself it's it's a wrong action to uh, to to poison people but that huge overblown blown out of proportion reaction by the media to this happily portraying russia as the bad guys
1: yeah it, this is something that was very nicely feeding into the existing narrative it really helps us if the people that we label as bad guys actually do bad things that makes our lives really really easy and it is comforting to know that we were right that so if you're an anti-trump support uh, an anti-trump person and you see trump being a complete idiot then that is very comforting to you because it's Reassures you that your analysis at the beginning was correct. If you see Vladimir Putin doing something evil, that is wonderful for you because that allows you to actually find comfort in knowing who is right and who is wrong in the world. But if you see Zelensky or Ukrainians or some other person that you've labeled as good um, do something evil or something that we Reject morally, then we've got a real problem, and then our our psyche doesn't like that. We 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 have a very confused reaction typically. So, the case of uh, Salisbury was very clearly one of it being a source of confirmation about our worldview. The case of Dugina. Was one that confuses our worldview, and we're desperately hoping that somehow it turns out that Putin was the one behind the the, the car explosion, the car bomb. Because if it turns out to be Ukrainian uh, intelligence agencies, then that ruins our picture of simplistic picture of good versus evil, the white hats versus the black hats.
0: And someone who is very much, um, I want to say, fallen victim to to this way of thinking. Uh, originally used to be Boris Johnson, who very much thrived on the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, because he could portray himself as this wartime prime minister, but his soon-to-be, most likely uh, replacement, Liz Truss, um, seems to seems to go into similar directions, right? Who's very much embracing this narrative uh, on, on Russia.
1: Or possibly even worse. She doesn't seem to have any filter in in her brain about the superiority of the western model and uh, she even at uh, when when ukraine when when the war started when russia invaded ukraine at the beginning she as foreign secretary actually put out a statement saying that she and the government would very much encourage British people to take up arms, fly to Ukraine and start fighting Russians. And even for Boris Johnson, that was a step too far. And he had to pull her back. And they had to uh, have a release, uh, press release stating that the, the words by Liz Truss had been taken out of context and, and badly understood and blah, 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 blah. Liz Truss is a diehard hawk when it comes to foreign policy with respect to um, the West versus, versus the rest. And specifically with respect to Ukraine. And that is a real problem. As we said before, if you're looking, and everyone should be doing this, if you're looking to find a way to end the violence in Ukraine, to end the bloodshed, to end the suffering of people, then you cannot be on a moral high horse. You cannot go and say, Uh, we will not stop until Russia has been defeated and Crimea is Ukrainian again. Because, newsflash, that's never going to happen. And that is not the way to bring peace or stability to these two countries. Uh, Liz is more hawkish than Zelensky. And, you know, that is bad news for foreign policy uh, if you're British or if you're European. Now, one thing that Liz also, has is this 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 sincere apparent belief in good versus evil, sort of a simplistic mind, if I might say so, of saying we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And this has been more and more pronounced in foreign policy overall, right? The List Trust is a extreme example of this. But the neoconservatives, the ones that we've mentioned before when we talked about the United States, made this gigantic error as well. They were they went into the war in Iraq in 2003 and afterward, and then the global war on terror, believing that they were obviously the good guys. And I said before, white hats versus bad uh, black hats. That's not a coincidence because that's the the old Westerns, the American Westerns, where the good guy would always be wearing a white hat and the bad guy would always be wearing a black hat. Uh, And... Who was a great, great um, fan of those kinds of films, Leo Strauss, the the the, the father of neoconservatism. And so it's that that movement that has sort of introduced the acceptance that the West somehow is validated in everything that they do because they are the good guys. And someone like Liz Strauss doesn't have the intellectual um, Capacity to really fully comprehend what she's doing, but she's the product of that process over many decades.
0: Exactly, and and these dynamics um, we discussed at great length in our episode number seven when we discussed the fall of U.S. foreign policy. So, speaking of of good versus evil, um, another another evil. Uh, that Russia has been has been doing uh, lately and this is this is kind of the news item we we want to feature here is that there are now exercises uh, being held between Russia um, and and some other countries and um, these other countries include China India Laos Mongolia Nicaragua Alger- Algeria Syria and a number of former Soviet states is what the article said which I just think is very interesting that um, it's these countries and a number of former Soviet states. Um, but, uh, yeah, so basically uh, we here, we want to obviously highlight the fact that uh, Russia is conducting a military exercise together with China, kind of relating that to the Ukraine episode that um, the world tried to isolate Russia. Well, no, the Western world tried to isolate Russia, but it did not uh, work out that well. And we want, also want to re- relate this to um, one of our um, more recent episodes, episode eight, um, when we talked about China and Taiwan where we analyze the western reaction towards the china taiwan conflict simply because taiwan in the west is seen as a symbol of the world wanting to copy the western model uh, of liberal democracy and that the west somehow needs to needs to defend this uh, so before we we move on to maybe some of the other countries involved i mean so what what message is it sending to to the world that the west tried to isolate russia but it didn't work out
1: well this this is a a negative a, a a bad result from Western foreign policy that goes well uh well beyond Ukraine right it's been going on for a very long time with the West in the twenty first century on this moral high horse and rejecting Russia and rejecting China for not following the liberal democratic game it seems obvious that they're pushing these countries towards each other um and and. The fact that China and Russia are holding military operations, even without the war in Ukraine, would have been a likely scenario. That in itself is not surprising, and that is simply the result of the West saying, you are on the wrong side of history, and then China and Russia looking at each other and saying, okay, well, if that's what the West thinks, we will show them differently. The fact that China hasn't... Um, taken a particularly critical stance against Russian action in Ukraine is very telling about how China views geopolitics at the moment. Because China is paying a price for this. China is paying a price for not speaking out. Um, it is if, if China wants to provide this model of prosperity towards the rest of the world, then they cannot afford to be seen liaising, allying with um, someone like Vladimir Putin, who generally globally is considered too much of a warmonger. But they do this because geopolitically, strategically, it makes sense from from a Chinese perspective, and it made sense before the invasion of Ukraine as well. What is more interesting strategically here is the inclusion of India. Because keep in mind that even though India has a history of relatively good close relations with russia this goes back all the way to the non-alignment of the cold war where india didn't take sides between the united states and the soviet union india does have china as a natural rival Um, you would think that china and and india do not want to engage in military exercises together because they are two huge countries both with a population of about 1.4 billion people who are eyeing each other and geographically and naturally seem bound to clash with each other in some way and yet India is not taking that stance anymore. India is not playing a hard game against China and is letting Russia create a triangle of power between New Delhi, Beijing and Moscow. And that is really, really bad news for the West.
0: I mean, it it just, I'm going to read this list out again. If you just look at the countries that India is basically now aligning themselves with, uh, you you wouldn't think that those are the traditional allies, right? So we're talking about China, okay, but then Laos, Mongolia, Nicaragua, Algeria, Syria, and a number of former Soviet states. (laughs) Not to forget those. Um, It's, I mean, this does not fit into this into this image that at least I have always perceived in, in Western conversations uh, where it's all about, you know, India, the biggest democracy in the world. Um, it's, uh, and that makes it a natural ally, I assume. India wants to be like the West, India is following that Western uh, model of development. Um, but it, I'm, 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 not, I'm not getting a lot of that uh, th- through this military exercise.
1: And this is, this is absolutely fascinating, again, when it comes to Western psychology. So, given that India is a democracy, its democratic credentials are a little bit under threat under the Modi government, to be fair. But India can proudly say that they are the largest democracy in the world. The West has been completely ignoring any... Threat coming out of India, any problems coming out of India, it has the label democracy, and the West is has this blind spot when it comes to India. It's it's not just that they let India get away with all kinds of things simply because it has the label democracy, but also they do not have any strategy towards India. They don't care really about what India does. It's It sort of feels like a safe place. You know, yeah, sometimes they, they make some mistakes, whatever, we don't care. We worry about China and Russia, which is, of course, fascinating from a neutral, rational perspective that if you're strategically concerned about the world order in the 21st century, India should be one of your main, main concerns because India is not yet dedicated to either side of the, of the geopolitical spectrum. So if you want to create a world in your own image, then India should be a main focal point of your strategy. And yet the West completely ignores India because you know what, well, their democracy, they're gonna be like us, they're gonna be with us forever. And reality is showing that that's not the case. That first of all, India is questioning at the moment its own democratic values and because of its current government. And secondly, India strategically is looking at the world and saying, are North America and Europe really that useful to us? Or is Russia and China the future for us? And do we need to sort of create some bridges with China and stop this border bickering between our two nations and see if we can work together uh, because Asia is the new core, the new center of world affairs. That's what India is doing, and the West is, seems to be completely blind to
0: this. Is China going to be successful with this? I mean, will there be a world where the majority of the countries and the majority of the economic power is following the, the Chinese model or China?
1: Well, that's, that's very questionable still, right? Uh, it, it seems much more likely that we're moving towards a world uh, sort of... An, Genuine multipolar worlds with various groups that vaguely align with each other. The idea of China leading a coalition of Russia and India seems very far off, right? Uh, Russia is sometimes now being called a puppet of China because of Putin's dependence, economic and strategic dependence on Xi Jinping. But that's an exaggeration. India will never be in any way except being somehow a, a puppet of China. And China will not accept much less from India when it comes to close alliance. So those two will not bond together to form a big anti-Western bloc. That seems obvious. The question is more whether the West will be able to use India for its own agenda. And that is more questionable, right? That, that is, that's unlikely. It is not that obvious what the path is for the West in the 21st century, let's say, to moving towards 2050, what the West is to actually stabilize global affairs and promote its liberal democratic values. But whatever that path is, it should include India. And it seems obvious that India is not very keen on playing that game. So in that sense, China will have a victory there. But that doesn't mean that we're going to have a world where... Everything is centered around Beijing and Russia and India will happily follow Xi Jinping towards a better tomorrow.
0: Well, then this seems like a great moment in to today's conversation, um, basically recapping uh, the, the previous episodes and what happened last month and how we, can, how we can relate that to each other. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to jhasenstab at and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side, Balder. Which closing quote did you bring for us today?
1: I I chose a quote that is interesting because it very much goes to the heart of our podcast series. Uh, there are biases in our world. Well, this is not a quote. This is me talking still. Uh, there are biases in our worlds that we kind of know about with respect to ourselves, right? When we know ourselves, we know ourselves that we have a left-wing bias or right-wing bias. Maybe we don't call it bias, but perspective, whatever. But we're kind of aware of it. But the Western bubble that we're analyzing is actually much deeper than that. Is something that is uh, not something that people walking down the streets of Berlin or New York actually ever think about. The, 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 the bubble of living in a liberal democracy. And for that I chose a quote by the great, late um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who unfortunately passed away two years ago. Unconscious bias is one of the hardest things to get at. Mm-hmm.